0: I am emily lyons in 2011 without a high school degree and with no money to my name i decided to start my own business since then i've built several multi-million dollar companies and i don't plan on stopping being a businesswoman ceo serial entrepreneur survivor and general life enthusiast i've endlessly jazzed by the business of life especially the stories of extraordinary people i've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people. So get ready to be inspired. Hi everyone, welcome back. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, the incredibly brilliant Chris Mattman. I met Chris through a mutual friend and was just blown away by him. He is certainly one of the most intelligent people I have ever met, while also managing to be one of the most humble. A very rare combination indeed. Chris is a scientist who works for NASA. He is the Chief Technology and Innovation Officer and the Division Manager for the Artificial Intelligence Analytics and innovation development. He's also a husband, a father, and so much more. So today we dive into everything from his career path to the future of AI, his work at NASA, aliens, and everything in between. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. So today I am joined by the incredible Dr. Chris Matman. Chris, welcome.
1: Emily, it's so great to be on the program. Thanks for having me. Big fan.
0: Oh, it's wonderful to have you. You know, we have a mutual friend, uh, Keith Grossman,
1: yes, Keith I- is awesome. The President of, of Time and the President of these odd images that you see on your Twitter are amazing art and other things. So
0: yes, and he just speaks so highly of you. I had to have you on,
1: hey. Well, I had to be here. it's It's a pleasure, you know, Happy Monday. so
0: <laughs> now, I've done a deep dive into your history. I've watched different videos and done a lot of reading. and Incredible is an understatement with how far you've come and the awards that you have won. And I would love to hear who is Chris in your words?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. It's hard to talk about myself or whatever, but, you know, I'll try at least for me. It's someone that is hardworking. You know, it's like I'm going to outwork people. I'm not the smartest person in the room, despite, you know, anyways, what you might have read or what you might Mm. think. It's just, you know, blood, sweat and tears. You know, for me, you know, I grew up in a trailer in Santa Clarita, California, which is about an hour north of Los Angeles. And, you know, it came from humble means, but parents gave me a lot of love. I had an amazing, loving family and support, you know, despite I, I joke around with people, you know, government cheese and, you know, 50 grit toilet paper <laughs> yeah, and things like that. <laughs> you know, but uh anyways, just working hard. I worked hard and, you know, got out of Santa Clarita. I worked hard, you know, on my grades and things like that. I went to college in LA at the University of Southern California and I wasn't even interested in space, you know, in the beginning. I mean, space was always kind of cool, but it was sort of a means to an end. But I got really interested in space. I I got an internship at JPL when I was a sophomore at USC. And I was really just looking for a job and something to kind of support myself. And uh, yeah, I got to JPL. I started working there for a couple of years. And the thing that really kind of struck me was in 2003, the Mars rovers. And I didn't even work on Mars stuff for my first 10 years at JPL. But I just, I mean, seeing those two twin rovers land on Mars, seeing Governor Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, you know, shake hands with my friends and mission control, I was just like, oh my God, I work here. You know, it's amazing. And yeah, so for me, it's just been, you know, a grind. The other things that I am kind of later in life here for me is, you know, a father. I have three children, amazing wife and family, a couple dogs. And yeah, it's just gotten into, you know, being athletic, ketogenic diet, <laughs> you know, running, all those things. So
0: yeah, you post a lot of food pics, I noticed.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, you know, they're keeping us. First off, so I underwent a transformation, you know, actually in the nine months leading up before the pandemic, I'd gotten pretty hefty you know it's probably my biggest weight all my whole life I've gone up and down you know and it just depends in the past I could you know work it off by going to the gym or whatever and lifting weights and stuff but you know as you get older you don't always have time to do that and hey I'd gotten up to about probably 250 260 and I'm 5'9 and that's unhealthy and you know you can see this in my older pictures and yeah so my wife got us on the ketogenic diet you know that's basically where you cut sugar out of your life and carbs you know mostly you know I was down to about 20 carbs a day. And for nine months, I did that. And I lost about 80 pounds. And this was leading into the pandemic. And so by the time I got into the pandemic, I was really into just what types of food can I eat? You know, I'm half Sicilian and half Irish. And so I'm into food is love, you know. And, uh, you know, so I was really into what types of food you could eat. And basically, you know, that's why you see a lot of the pics. And then I got into cooking it. And, you know, if you have to eat that type of way, you're going to cook a particular way. So, yeah. But then anyways, I got into running too. this all led into the pandemic. And to be honest, it was a good thing. Uh, You know, I felt at least healthy during that time. And I mean, it's still here in many parts of the West. It's not over yet. And it's definitely not over in the whole world. But anyways, leading into that, it was really good, at least for me and our family. And the running just kind of went naturally with that.
0: Hmm. I would think that you would be very health conscious.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I am now. <laughs> I wasn't always. You know, like I said, the last and partially it's just you know when you're doing too much. You know, sometimes you don't take care of yourself or you're you know basically I don't know if your audience you know this happens to them, but you know as you start to kind of do too much, like the thing you put to the side is like taking care of yourself either with what you eat or being healthy and things like that. And I definitely did that for about a five year period. I just kind of let it go. But yeah, luckily, before, you know, before the pandemic hit, you know, like I said, it kind of got into that. So it was the right time, at least, you know, to get healthy.
0: So I have to ask, what does a chief technology and innovation officer at NASA do?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, partly my role is sort of dual part. One part of it is basically to kind of envision the future and look into new technologies like information technologies, hardware technologies, you know, look at AI, you know, look at things like blockchain, cryptocurrency, and see what types of those technologies we could apply to the NASA mission, you know, and to the space mission. So our core mission at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is one of nine NASA centers. Okay, so NASA is a big distributed agency throughout the United States. And there are different centers. There's Ames Research Center in Northern California. There's Goddard Space Flight Center right there in the Beltway in Maryland, right by DC. There's all these centers. And so each center has a role. And JPL's role is basically to lead autonomous exploration of space and mainly deep space. So we lead the Mars program. We operate the Deep Space Network, which are these football stadium-sized 70-meter dishes in Canberra, Australia, Madrid, Spain, and Goldstone, California, which is responsible for all of the communication with assets in deep space and even in near-Earth, you know, a little bit. And the Deep Space Network is not just for the United States. All countries use the Deep Space Network to do communication with their satellites in space and their assets on other planets, potentially, if they're so lucky to have those. So yeah, so we operate the DSN, we run the Mars program, we do all the robots. And so part of my role as as CTO at JPL is looking at those technologies that fit and apply to those programs and seeing which ones we should adopt and fuse. And the other part of my job is managing the division of innovators, You know, so curating the discipline of data science, of AI engineers, machine learning, and making sure that we have a healthy workforce to do that.
0: You said you aren't the smartest person. And I think many people would argue that that's not true. You seem brilliant. And, you know, having the position that you do, I think that for almost anybody, that would be a dream job. For somebody listening, what would you tell them if that was what they one day wanted to aspire to be?
1: Emily, you're too nice and thank you. And my advice to people would be sort of the following. Pursue your passion. And part of pursuing that passion is dedication, hard work, whatever you're doing. It doesn't have to be, you know, you're great at grades in school and stuff. I've met so many just luminaries who all have the same kind of core discipline to themselves, you know, and you might not learn it early, you know, in life, you know, it might be something that you pick up later. But once you figure out the formula to being successful in life, which is, You know, again, no matter what, you talk to all these innovators, hard work, dedication, discipline with yourself. And then, like I said, just pursue your interests. So if you're interested in space, a couple of things, you know, to pay attention to. One is the acronym STEAM for science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And so the A is newer. It's a recognition that, you know, being creative and having experience with the arts is really applicable, you know, to, to science, technology, you know, and engineering, right? You know, and and math is that they go hand in hand, you know, to that. But that acronym STEAM, you know, those areas are areas to kind of pursue and again, try and become disciplined, excel in, you know, basically be dedicated to. And then the other is if you like space, you know, and things like that, you know, NASA, JPL, and even commercial space nowadays, especially in earth science and near earth orbit things, not for deep space. Mm -hmm. It's not deep space isn't commercial yet, but commercial industry is booming So working at SpaceX, working, you know, at Boeing, working, you know, for Blue Origin, all those things throughout the world. Space is a booming area. You know, it's like now you can go to Target and pick up a NASA T-shirt, you know. It's
0: (laughs) It's definitely very cool.
1: Yeah, it's become kind of cool, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Okay, so that recent footage that the Pentagon released of the UAPs, what's your take on that?
1: Oh, all right. No problem. So UAPs, just for the audience, are unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's their weasel way to get around saying UFOs are unidentified flying objects. But UAPs, you know, that's basically what they're calling them now. And yeah, this footage. Why
0: why did they start calling them that?
1: You know, I mean, I, I don't know. To me, like, I feel like the UFO moniker probably carries with it some stigma, you know, of people mm. basically, you know, scoffing or, you know, the media, you know, basically saying, oh, you know, that's fake. principally over the last 50 years, if you're into pop culture media, and I know you are. And if you look at just the history of coverage of this, you know, UFO carried a bad moniker, you know, with it and carried like a, ha he, you know, when anyone introduced that topic, it was like automatically dismissed. So the Pentagon in the U.S. released this report, That basically they've been studying this phenomenon. And basically in the report, amongst the hundreds of sightings or whatever, you know, by trained military pilots, you know, people that were in, you know, on a boat and they saw something and things like that. Almost to a T, I think one or two they tracked down and could explain and the rest that they couldn't. But then they tried to categorize them into you know, what they possibly could be. And then many of them got the other category, which is the ones, you know, they're not ready to say that it's, quote, you know, an alien life, but, you know, they can't explain it, you know, by other means. It's not some foreign technology that they're aware of because it, you know, defies laws of physics and things like that. It's, you know, and if someone had that, it would be a major national security, all of these things. And so, you know, my take on this is sort of the following. So there's an equation called the Drake equation, you know, it's existed for a long time. It basically, you know, estimates given the amount of exoplanets or earth-like planets out there, the probability that there are other, you know, intelligent life in the universe. And, you know, by that Drake equation, it basically estimates there's a high probability, you know, of you know Earth-like planets that have exoplanets that could potentially be home to human life. So that's existed forever, and you, know, you can look that up on Wikipedia. It's a scientific equation, right? Drake equation. So there's probably a high probability. To me, it strikes as very human to believe that we would be the only intelligent life, you know, given you know that's out there. Now that said, Carl Sagan said, "Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof." And, you know, that's true. I mean, so if we have proof of an alien, you know, we need to have extraordinary proof, you know, and things like that for it. So my sense is that there's a high likelihood that it's possible. Do any of these prove that there's alien life? Well, there's a high bar. And that high bar basically turns it into religion, you know, on all sides. It's a leap of faith. You believe it? If I had a gray alien sitting behind me right now talking, you know, and you publish this on the Internet, someone could claim it was a deep faith. Someone could, you know, I could produce that alien to you, let you talk to it and touch it. How would you know it was real? You know what I mean? And so that's the trick nowadays is at some level, it all just sort of becomes religion. But in my faith, I believe there's a strong possibility for it. So
0: what is your faith? Can I ask?
1: Well, you know, yeah, if you can definitely ask. So, you know, I grew up largely non-denominational. I didn't go to church until I was 15. I went to church because my grandma and my mom basically incentivized my brother and I that we had to to (laughs) do it. And I went to a four square non-denominational church. I did that for about three and a half years, you know, until I got out of high school and got out of the house. And then I stopped going, (laughs) you know, and I don't go, you know, nowadays I don't practice, you know, in any type of religion. I'm not an atheist. I do believe in a God. I believe there is a God and a higher power but I don't go to church uh, or anything. I don't make my family go to church and things like that. I am interested in it, but I just haven't found myself actively practicing or anything. It's a very kind of
0: personal thing. Do you feel that you don't need the proof? You know,
1: that's a great thing. So again, like, so I'll put it this way, knowing what I know about technology and today's ability to manipulate things or Mm. whatever, and knowing over thousands of years, you know, the popcorn or the telephone game or just the fact that, you know, in religion, it relies on this sort of underlying faith as well, you know, of did someone scribe what happened, you know, 2000 years ago, right? You know, do you trust that, you know, I mean, do you know anyone from 2000 years ago? You know, nobody does, right? Like we're generations past that. So we rely on these books and things in which people are said to have written that down in a particular way and things like that. So even the underlying assumption there. Requires a leap of faith. But, you know, the thing that strikes me in my own life, you know, my own personal life related to religion and faith is that there are just things that I've experienced like inside my, my heart, my soul, where I just feel like I attribute that to some higher power. You know, and things like that. And then, you know, just I'm not like a big student of religion or things, but I read the Bible, you know, I've looked at, you know, I I haven't read like Quran or other things like that, but I have looked at a lot of religious texts and they all share some commonalities and themes you know, across it, you know, even some direct overlap of, you know, characters or people and things like that. And so given that sort of similarity and things like that, you know, I ascribe some level of truth to those things. But again, I also know that humans don't do a good job even today, you know, of recording, you know, what happened in a particular way. And I know how that can be manipulated. So anyways, even there, I think there's some level of faith, right? So.
0: I'm hopeful. When people say are you religious, I say I'm hopeful.
1: Yeah, there you go. That's right.
0: What would you say has been your proudest moment so far, career-wise?
1: Probably my proudest moment career-wise was when I found out in 2017 that the work I had been doing for about a decade, building a technology that dealt with basically files and identifying them and extracting information from them, was the key technology that they used to kind of uncover the Panama Papers scandal. And then it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. That, like, and so that was an interesting moment. You know, you build something for a long time. I wasn't like directly using this technology. You know, so anyways, real quick, the Panama Papers is this international financial scandal. You know, it was largely revealed in 2017, 2016, 2017. Basically, what happened is lots of people. I won't say abused because this is a gray area too, but they take advantage of the international global financial system. Mm -hmm. And they basically, you know, the rich and the wealthy basically hide their money in offshore shell accounts. You know, they create corporations in the Maldives or they in places that have loose sort of financial oversight, you know, laws. And so that's been going on. It's still going on. You know, this Panama Papers scandal didn't stop that. But what happened was one of the brokers of the data related to that financial information, that kind of, you know, messy that no one who's rich wants anyone to see data was this company called Monseca. And basically they were hacked in 2015, 2016, their internal like website or portal for their clients. It was hacked like 11 terabytes of all of their financial data outlining basically, you're someone famous. You've got these three shell corporations that you're hiding. It's a tax haven to hide from getting taxed in the US, the UK, wherever, right? All of that data was leaked. Well, 11 terabytes a day is a lot of data. And 400 journalists that were part of International Consortium for Journalists were basically investigating this and developing a story, you know, based on it to kind of see what they and you know, what they found is the prime minister of Iceland hides their money. Hermione Granger, Emma Watson, you know, is part and parcel of this hides money, you know, they do it to basically protect themselves and have a tax haven. And so The key technology that these reporters use to analyze all that data, develop all the links, networks between people, places, things, and locations, given that in that 11 terabytes of data, there was probably, you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of Word documents, PowerPoint presentations, whatever, right, you know, PDF files. To make that network and develop it that didn't take the age of the universe to kind of analyze, they used the technology that I invented called Tika. And so... I discovered in 2017 that they did that. And what I discovered, too, when I saw that come out was all of these questions that they had been asking us in this open source project that I made were actually by these journalists that we didn't know at the time who were kind of going through that data and using my technology to do that. And so, yeah, anyways, that's my proudest moment. So
0: That's incredible. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing this?
1: Wow. That's a fantastic question. I have so many interests. You know, I've thought about that. I'm really, well, a couple of subjects I've gotten really interested in over the last five years is like foreign policy, law, just international human rights, you know, and things like that. So I might be working in something related to those spaces. Other things, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll be a, a trainer for a ketogenic diet. Actually, my wife's better at that than me, but I just repeat everything she tells me. Something fulfilling, you know, if I wasn't doing this. There are so many things that in sports, heck, I mean, a Mm. sports reporter, maybe I love sports. I love college football. I love, you know, basketball. I'm a sports addict. So I like writing, although I'm in a sort of writing funk right now. And I actually, I just finished a book, but I, once you finish a book, you're kind of, you want to get out of writing for a little bit. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, kind of in that space, but yeah, maybe sports, maybe sports reporter. I don't know.
0: I'm always interested on what drives people, you know, what's their purpose. What would you say is your purpose? Do you have one?
1: That's a really good question. My purpose, I don't know, like I gamify things a lot. So I'm always Mm -hmm. looking to kind of like challenge myself internally or mentally or physically. Mm -hmm. So maybe my purpose is related to that. Now, you know, when you have children, I think part of that becomes your purpose as well. So, you know, I have three kids. I've got, you know, two boys. I've got an older son who's 12, a middle son who's almost six, and a daughter who's almost four Aww. and, you know, your kids are part of your purpose, you know, watching them grow up and helping them and trying to teach them and view onto them the things that happen to you or give them a better life than say you had or things like that. That's part of my purpose. Part of my purpose being a good husband, enjoying my I've been married for almost 20 years or maybe over wow. 20 years. Yeah. So part of that. And then just, I don't know, living the good life, not being stressful. I love animals. You know, I love dogs. We have a couple dogs right now. But growing up, my grandmother was a big animal enthusiast. I had snakes, tarantulas, rats, reptiles, birds. I mean, we were living in this like janky trailer in Santa Corita, but we had, you know, every animal you could think of. You know, I had a big iguana. <laughs> so I love animals, you know, so.
0: That's awesome. I'm a huge animal lover too. Four yeah. dogs, four little dogs. Oh, that's
1: great. That's great. Well, you're doing a good job. Hopefully they're doing all right. You know, right. Now. you're probably doing a good job if you're raising four of them. So.
0: <laughs> Thank you. So, oh my gosh, I was thinking how often you must get that joke of, well, it's not rocket science. Oh, wait.
1: <laughs> yeah. The rocket science joke or rocket scientist is like the classic one is like, and I follow that, you know, on social media or just with my friends, or if anyone makes a joke where they're like, you know, something about space or, you know, oh, this is a really hard problem. I said, someone order a rocket scientist, you know, or I mean, (laughs) that type of thing, you know, like, so absolutely. Yes, that's fair game. So
0: (laughs) I think that and brain surgeons must get it nonstop.
1: Yes, I don't have the hands for that. I have magic typing hands, but not surgeon hands. Keep me away from human beings on those. I can do bits and bytes, but not human beings. So,
0: So what is your book about? And where can you find
1: it? Sure. No problem. So the book that I just finished is all about machine learning with a very, very popular framework. It's basically Google's framework for doing it called TensorFlow. It's not only about this particular software framework. It's really just a core book about machine learning. And the basis behind it is sort of the following, like about 17 years into a career, like everyone thinks I know everything about AI or, or whatever. But frankly, you know, I was watching the new generation you know, the people in in my organization and they really know about AI and machine learning. And so I got tired of kind of like showing up to meetings, you know, and faking the funk or, you know, I mean, I know some, you know, about this stuff. I really kind of cut my teeth on statistics and data and things like that. So, I mean, I could understand some of what they were talking about, but I didn't have a deep understanding of it. And so finally, you know, one day, so so about 10 years ago, I wrote a book on Tika, you know, which is well, actually now, gosh, what is it? Has been, yeah, it's been about 10 years. And that was the one that helped solve the Panama papers eventually. But back then, I wrote basically kind of like the only book on this particular technology because I invented it. So what? So who cares? Right. That's lots of people do that. It wasn't like a big great selling book or anything, but it, you know, it was just like my gift to the world. Here's the framework I built. It was called Tika in Action. It was published by Manning Publications. And so Manning is a tech publisher. And so they, you know, they'll send authors books or they'll let you know or give you deals, you know, on books. And so in 2018, I think, yeah, I was tired of not knowing what was going on. And so this particular book, you know, it was one of the things that was like called machine learning with TensorFlow. And so I said, oh, you know, I got a copy of that book and I started reading it. And, you know, it was so well kind of done, you know, in a way it was like funny, snarky. It made like, you know, examples like understandable. And I just sort of devoured this book. I took notes in it. I got a piece of paper and started drawing matrices. I really tried to kind of work my way through the problems in this book. Covered natural language processing, vision, all the kind of classic things. And so I got my way through this book and... I was like, oh my God, I tell my wife one night, I said, I see why people are really just all in on AI and why people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are like, well, this is like real, you know? And by then I had taken so many notes on how to go through that book, how to improve it. And the first author had this habit and it's great. I totally understand why he did it. But He had this habit of kind of like throwing out at the end of a chapter. Now that I've taught you this, you know, concept like clustering, you know, you might want to take a look at this data set and try this, except the data set that he was telling you to take a look at was like tens of gigabytes or hundreds of gigabytes of size doing the example. He kind of just threw out at the end, took like five weeks and would basically be what I taught a graduate class on. And, (laughs) you know, at USC, it was just kind of, he had this habit of doing it. And by then, since I had gone through that whole book, I had all the notes, all the notebooks, everything else. And basically by the end, I had enough material for like a new fresh updated take on that book. And so that's what I did. And so, you know, I remember in 2019 being like, you know, it took me nine months to kind of go through that book. I have enough material to write a new book, you know, based on it. And so that's basically what I did. I wrote Machine Learning with TensorFlow Second Edition and it's a completely new book. And it takes you through the journey of AI It teaches you about basically making predictions on continuous numerical data, which is called regression, takes you through classification, which is like making a categorical prediction, labeling something as a banana and apple or whatever, takes you through clustering, you know, takes you through all the way up to computer vision, basically auditory things, taking speech, turning it to text. And it has full end examples, you know, through it. And it's basically kind of like the core guide to Google's framework now. Uh, you know, and Google is basically kind of pushing it. And so, yeah, that was a, a labor of love. I told my wife after the first one, I wouldn't write a book again. But, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, I did. And so, yeah, that's a book.
0: Ah, wonderful. I'm going to check it out and order a copy. What do you think about people that fear the future of AI? Because I hear that all the time. I think we all do.
1: What's funny, I have an interesting quote on that. It was an article that The Wall Street Journal did that I contributed to. It's by Chris Mims. who's a great tech reporter there. And it says, AI is it magical and it won't save your business. (laughs) And actually, (laughs) I love that title. And and I was a little worried when they asked me to kind of opine in that because I was like, am I kind of throwing water on the fire here, you know, with this? But the reality is, it's such a good answer to the question that you just asked. AI is not magical, and it won't save your business. So what does that mean? So what it means is like, today, the use of it. So a lot of people think about AI, and they think about, you know. Vision or Ultron if you're an Avengers or Marvel fan or they think about, you know, maybe more dystopian terms, the Terminator, Skynet, things like that. I can keep going with these pop culture references too if you want. But anyways, basically they think about those things. The reality is we don't have that yet. Now there are signs, you know, of things that we can build if we put them together as humans do in a particular way that we could get there, you know, someday or whatever. But the state of the art right now is really in automating things, automating human oriented tasks. That's very real. And so, obviously, the things there are ethical concerns related to that because there are issues related to reskilling people. You know, you can't take, you automate away, say, a trucker who drives 18 hour shifts, you know, from, you know, state A to state B, you know, and you automate their job away, you know, and these are well-paying, you know, possibly low skilled jobs or whatever, arguably you automate their job away. And, you know, then you have people talking about learn to code, you know, and that's a gap. So there are real ethical concerns with skill transfer on the automation element of AI today. And we need to do a better job at that. Tomorrow, what are we going to be able to do with AI besides automation? Well, we're really good at AI at basically looking at human beings and, you know, looking at the ways that they're put together and their systems work like your visual cortex and your eyes or your auditory system and the way you hear and you translate it to text or the way that you learn languages, you know, and things like that. These are all modeled. So modern neural networks, all they do is they take the last 50 years of biology and neurology and things like that, and basically brain function and networks, and they basically digitize them. You know, so your visual cortex is a convolutional neural network, the way that you scan, identify objects and images, and then label things in your mind, your auditory system, your eardrum and things like that is modeled by a network that was made famous by Baidu called the deep speech network you know, and things like that, which is them digitizing your auditory signals. So the other thing that we're good at is looking at biology, neurology and things like that, and then automating kind of the low level functional systems. Now, what's the advantage of doing that? Humans get bored. You know, we get lazy. We are forgetful. So though we have these amazing, powerful eyes, ears and things like that, we get tired of doing the same thing over and over with them. Computers don't. So you could imagine, uh uh-oh, my computer, see my visual cortex, Mm -hmm. actually my auditory system just kicked in from one of them. So automating those things, automating those low-level systems and having machines do them allows them to get better than human performance on tasks that we previously said were just too hard for machines to do. That's kind of the next thing and that's happening today. And then finally... You know, what's going to happen way out in the future that has people scared is the way that you put these things together and way out in the future might be 10 or 20 years. But like you can imagine if we can model really well human biological systems, if we can model repetition and automation of those tasks, if we can put those together, which they haven't, you know, in a, you know, economical, easy to reproduce or whatever way. Well, then that's where people start to get scared right because even putting those systems together in a way i'm not even talking about generalized intelligence but just putting those systems together in a way is very powerful and has you know other ethical implications you know do the machine know when to stop you know does the machine have a moral code you know and that's why ai ethics and things like that they're trying to work on the framework today and it's really 10 to 20 years ahead of the realization of it
0: Elon Musk he's been working on the neuralink are you familiar with that
1: Yes. So the neural link is basically a human brain interface. This is basically an attachment that plugs into your brain, basically. And you know, how does he do this or whatever? Well, we know a lot about the brain today because again, that second part of the answer that I just gave you is how does your visual cortex work? Well, we model these neural networks. Neural networks are basically digitized models of the neurons, the synapses, and the ways that your brain is organized. Your brain is a network of basically specialized cells that exchange electricity. And as it turns out, you know, in that environment, we know a lot more today than we knew 10 years ago about so much so that you can take electronics, physical devices, just a physical device that you've basically put on your head and it is interfacing with your brain. Why is this useful? Well, there's all kinds of reasons that people are scared, you know, scared the bejesus out of them. Fine, I get that. But why could it be useful? Well, people that have lost brain function that can't hear anymore, right? So, restoration of here's just a simple thing. We know we have digital neural networks today that take auditory signal, right? And that turn it into text or that, you know, enhance it and things like that. Imagine then basically turning that into a physical device and someone who, say, is impaired or they have, you know, a disability or something like that, restoring their function, you know, or restoring. You can imagine eventually possibly, you know, it restoring possible eye, you know, function or vision function, things like that. So there are positive things, you know, from this. A lot of people are worried that it's going to be, you know, used in nefarious ways. And that's always a possibility. You can't throw that out once you open Pandora's box with that. You know, people used to say that about me as some technology that I've created, you know. I helped to, besides the Tika stuff, I was a member of the board of directors at this big foundation that's basically produced most of the software of the internet in the last, you know, I don't know, 20 years, the Apache Software Foundation. One of the things that's produced that I helped to create was the big data platform called Hadoop that's deployed at all big companies to manage their data. Well, Hadoop was also used by the National Security Agency to basically build the cell phone collection system, you know, the metadata system and all that. Well, you know, people say, oh, you contributed to that. Well, yeah, but I didn't like tell them to go use it, you know, or, or take our software and do it. For every case like that, there's a 100 cases of people using it for good, you know. And so that's the way I look at, you know, the neural link and the other technologies and stuff like that. Could someone use it for bad? Possibly. But could it restore the vision of Tens of thousands of people, could it restore hearing function? Yes. Would I take that, you know, over a couple bad actors potentially doing bad? Yes, I would. I would. In my opinion, that's a fair trade. You know, I can't control mental health
0: if it could correct some of those issues and so many people suffering.
1: Yeah, Emily. And you know, mental health is definitely a big issue. Anything that we can model, you know, especially brain function or diseases or, you know, and we know more too about those today, even related to mental health than we did 10, 15 years ago as well. Even upstream as far to the molecules and the proteomics and the DNA that cause some of these things, you know, and all of that. And so you can imagine an end-to-end solution, you know, systematically to some of these things. And so, so basically anything that we can model or that people are studying in neural networks could potentially be something they could put or make into one of these neural link things, you know, eventually. And so, for those reasons and for the possible positive uses of that, I'm generally supportive of those capabilities.
0: What if they approached you now and said they uh, wanted to test one on you, but it was workable and no side effects?
1: Workableness. I'm always open to things like that. I haven't jumped out of the plane and skydive yet. But I am definitely interested in things like that. So,
0: I know if you could become a superhuman, I want to learn Spanish.
1: Oh, so get this, Emily. So related to that, like learning Spanish and all that, this has some other concerns that the people have. But, you know, again, it's that trade-off that I already mentioned. In two to five years, you won't need to do that anymore. Like learn different languages. Why? We're so good today. Again, automated speech recognition, speech to text, fine. And now we have the systems that are being built out called for machine translation, language to language, English to any, many to English, you know, things like this. Basically, the 100 or so 200 plus widely spoken and written languages, we have systems, neural machine translation systems that model the way that our brain learns language, like to a chilling effect, like it's done. In other words, the technology is already there. It's powering all of your digital assistants today and even news and translation and stuff between that. So the reason you won't need to learn a language is that they're making small, you know, embedded IOT devices, not a neural link thing, but just pieces that you put in your ear. And they're now becoming economical to a point of, again, where in two to five years, you and I will buy one, we'll have one. And then I'll be speaking to you. Like, let's say you want to receive French. I'll be speaking to you in English. You'll hear French. You'll speak back to me in French and I'll hear English. These are going to be less than $100. You know, eventually, you know, they're going to be commodity. And at that level, you don't need to learn another language. Now, the only problem is in areas where they call low-resource languages, where they're not widely spoken or written, and there's about mm-hmm. 6,000 of those. Wow. You know? And so those are a challenge. And that's why most of the companies, Amazon, Google, and places like that, you know, even Facebook, Instagram, are working on basically big bets, like $100 million program bets to basically get better at low resource languages where you have less samples, you know, of the data, because the challenge with machine learning is it's data hungry. So you need a lot of data to train the most powerful machine learning models. The reason that for all the widely spoken and written languages, this is solved today is because all of the major internet and media companies have been collecting this data for 25 years, a news report written in this language and translated to this language by humans. And there's so much examples, so many samples of data you know, And it's messy and unstructured, but they've made such big bets and investments at these companies to make the data structured and nice, like a big table, like a spreadsheet. And that's what machine learning wants. It wants organized data. The challenge with low resource languages or whatever is that A, they don't have enough samples right, to learn from. And then B, it's messy and unstructured. And people haven't made those bets and investments to make them better. But they will. And when they do, and this is the ethical concern is you know, the thing you ask yourself is, is learning a language, a skill that the next generation should have? Or has it been automated away? You know, Mm -hmm. and we don't need that anymore. And that's kind of one of those questions to ask. But yeah, like you don't even need Neuralink for that. If you're willing to wear like an iPod headpiece, you're good.
0: There was a service that someone on my team mentioned the other day where you go to their website, you input your personal character traits, and then an article that you want to write about. So you if you're writing a blog or social media post, what you want it to be about, and then it just generates it in your style of writing, eliminating the need for a writer, but also doing it in a way so that it is favorable, as favorable as possible for search engine optimization on Google. And that was just kind of mind blowing to me. I was like, wow. And it writes it in your tone. It sounds like you.
1: Yeah, that technology has been made powerful by when you hear people talk about the GPT-2 or GPT-3 models, those are language models that basically, you know, they haven't gotten to it yet. But like these are trained on billions network size, like so that human brain has billions, hundreds of billions of neurons in it right? Possibly trillions, right? These little cells, you know, that fire, you know, and things like that with electricity and allow it to flow through sometimes and not. And so that GPT-3 model, I believe is hundreds of billions of neurons, you know, so it's a huge model, like to train it, you know, this is why people are worried about training machine learning, you know, and things like the energy, you know, related to that in the consumption and, you know, really to things like climate change and all that but basically once that model was trained that big bet that big investment was made people are adapting that model what that model learned is basically the structure of the human language how to write you know how to emulate everything you just said style form patterns you know but it was trained on say all the data on the internet right and so how many unique personas voices and things like that did it capture when it learned that <laughs> so many right and so that's why today with the GPT-3, and this is also, you know, OpenAI, you know, which Elon had invested in too. This is why they didn't want to release their newest model initially because they were so worried at the types of, say, articles and stories that it could generate. It's indiscernible from the human eye and things like that whether you wrote that or the machine did, you know, and things. And so uh, they eventually did release their model. It's based off of the GPT-3, you know, and all of that. But yeah, it's basically the same concept is like, okay, is writing those types of stories again? And here's the skills ethical question. Is that a skill that we need or should it be automatable? And if you look at the human history, right, people probably never thought that they wouldn't have to be, you know, say people that cared for horses. Right. When we had horse drawn buggies. You know, they probably never thought that they'd have to start, you know, doing maintenance on wooden wheels, you know, (laughs) and eventually people never thought, you know, that freeways would grow to six lanes or that you would have to worry about problems like that. And so there are always moments in history in which people have reskilled themselves. The big challenge, you know, is like, what's the kind of off ramp for that? What are the barriers? And so that's the thing that has people up in arms, you know, right now is they feel oh it's happening too fast or, you know, things like that. And if on the grand scale or scheme of things, it's not, (laughs) you know, if you look back historically to some of these things, it's actually pretty commensurate with technology leaps and bounds and things like that that have happened. But I think the challenge that many people have had is this on whatever aisle, you know, you sit on of this sort of national conversation or international conversation and debate is that people don't want to talk about that. There's just been this sort of like, oh, I don't want to talk about, you know, or just, you know, vitriol on both sides. The reality is we need to talk about it. People always talked about it. We need to figure out the best way to use these skills that are suddenly becoming automatable and to reskill people in different ways.
0: 100%. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and you are just incredible and brilliant. I hope that we can do this again. But where can people find more information about you?
1: So thanks, Emily. I really appreciate this. It's been a pleasure too. And I do hope we can do it again as well. If anyone wants to find any information about me, they can go to Matman, which is my last name, M-A-T-T-M-A-N-N dot A-I. So I'm now an A-I on the internet as well. So Matman dot (laughs) A-I.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to snap a photo. Awesome. Thank you again so much, Chris. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you.
1: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Emily. And looking forward to talking soon.